Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. We've been talking with Congresswoman Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania and her son, Harry Kanan. The two co-authored a forthcoming memoir, Under Our Roof. It details Harry's battle with opioid addiction and their family's road to recovery. A couple of weeks after the initial interview, Representative Dean began her second term and began unveiling new legislation. We had a few more questions, this time focusing on the actions she is taking under a different roof, the United States Congress. A lot of families struggle, but very few families have a member in Congress where the laws get made. Ending stigma is very important. How you get through that, this spiritual journey that you take, which you so beautifully talked about. But then there is a third piece, how the personal experiences that you decided to share with the public, how does that inform your policymaking? So at the time, Harry and I were, you know, sort of head to head. Um, trying to figure out what was going on. I was a state representative. And it was just dawning on me through the evidence that was coming into Pennsylvania of the critical problem we were having, number one, on the drugs coming into communities, uh, traversing our state in very uh, devastating and deadly ways. Number two, the impact that our criminal justice system was having, to my experience, to the wrong the war on drugs, the mandatory minimums. And so even before I fully knew where Harry was or what we were dealing with, I was a member of the Judiciary Committee for the State House saying, we've got to rethink this. This doesn't make any sense. We have to stop these mandatory minimums that don't do anything but over-incarcerate people of color and further demonize and stigmatize a lot of people who are struggling either with mental health problems or with substance abuse disorder and addiction. On the flip side, in terms of our economic structure and our educational structure, what are we doing about this? What are we doing about stigma? So even before I knew what Harry was slipping into the depths of, I recognized that our policies in terms of healthcare for all, in terms of parity for mental health, in terms of stigma around mental health disorders, depression, addiction, but the whole gamut. I knew we were still in, I don't want to say the dark ages, but we had a long way to go. Well, now here you are, a member of Congress, and right now you sit in the majority. What are you doing to take those perspectives that you've witnessed in Pennsylvania, that you see unfolding today, and in this time in which we're talking specifically about systemic racism influencing the war on drugs and disproportionate record of mentally ill individuals coming from black and brown communities incarcerated. How are you seeking to address this? I understand you also sit on the Judiciary Committee in the United States House. So how do you see yourself playing a role now in a position with more power? Our experience allowed me to get closer to these problems. And I'm saying that word closer on purpose. I'm thinking of Brian Stevenson, who says, if you want to do something about a problem, you need to get proximate to it. Well, our family got really proximate to the disease of addiction. 
and to the extraordinary horrors of it, the sadness of it, the risks of it. And of course, through our experience and the families that we know, uh, others have suffered so much more and have lost so much. And so by being proximate, by being close to it, it told me that I got to do something about it. Yes, we're in the majority now in, in the U.S. House. What a difference a majority makes. We had a broader majority last go-round, my first session in Congress, the 116. We have a very slim majority now. I'm a part of a, a caucus that Congressman Trone uh, developed around addiction uh, based on his own family's personal losses and experience. And so I believe the bill, for example, that I was able to pass out of the House last time, we're reintroducing it, I think, literally Thursday of this week. Uh, having to do with the fairness and orphan drug pricing in order to get medically assisted treatments affordably to people who are dealing with addiction. So we're going to pass legislation that we passed last time. We'll pass it again. This time, I hope, with partners in the Senate, with the very slim Democratic majority in the Senate, and then, of course, with the leadership of President Biden and Kamala Harris. I don't know too many people who don't know somebody who is dealing with the disease of addiction. So if it's not immediately in your family, you certainly know somebody in your school, in your neighborhood, in your church, in, in some capacity, some association that you have. A bill that we've come up with, the End Stigma Act, is grants to colleges. If you had a chance to read some of the book, you saw the struggle that I had with Harry slipping deep into addiction while in college. and nobody's bothering to raise their hand to say, your son has a serious problem here. Mm. I appreciate you outlining those legislation to end stigma, legislation to address treatment. I understand you also recently in the last week introduced the Community Health Center Mental Health Screening Act, which comes with price tag of $50 million to assist states in adopting mental health screening. It, these feel like very discrete objectives. Is that the strategy at this point, that to address this very big problem, we need to have discrete steps that are being made because there is not enough critical public demand for a systemic response to the crisis this country is facing? If this were to pass, please, Lord. And this is introduced with somebody I really admire, Lisa Blunt Rochester of Delaware, a colleague and friend to our new president. And so I don't think $50 million a year is a small amount of money. I don't know what it's going to take, frankly. And one of the reasons I wear this starfish pin is to say, instead of shouting at the darkness, this problem is so monumental, I don't know how we're ever going to get the dollars to do what we need to do. I'm trying to find concrete ways, some small, like grants around stigma for colleges. That's a smaller initiative. Whereas the community health centers, a $50 million annual initiative, I think is, is a larger one. So we're just trying to come up with strategies that will shine a light on this, that will shed resources on it, all with the idea that what Harry and I did in, in the book is to say, if we can talk about this and we can admit our stumbles, maybe we can help others shed the stigma. And you and I haven't even talked about the criminal justice system. Your acknowledgement and recognition of the war on drugs and its impact in essentially placing police officers in the role that, frankly, social workers and healthcare providers should be in. 
Are there one or two policies that you feel need to be prioritized to address the crisis facing the mentally ill who are incarcerated? What I want to do is shine a light on that and say the idea that we criminalize possession of small amounts of drugs, whatever it is, we know the impact on communities of color. We know the economic impact, uh, the cash bail system, all of these layers of injustices. But I, I have to say I have some hope because I'm a member of the Judiciary Committee with a Democratic majority who recognizes the war on drugs didn't work, that mandatory minimums don't work. And while we will have members on the other side of the aisle rail against us and just say, you're soft on crime, you want to put all the criminals, violent criminals out on the street. Well, no, I don't. I want to treat addiction and mental illness as addiction and mental illness and separate out crime. You know, drug courts are a huge advance. There's a whole lot we can do to be more humane in our criminal justice system, to recognize the failings in our mental health system, in our health care system. We've got a long way to go. In a lot of states, you see the engagement or partnership with faith-based recovery centers and with behavioral health facilities. Some have come under significant scrutiny because of the treatment um, that patients or clients receive if they are not holding the same faith or any faith tradition that is in line with the belief system of that particular facility. And because they're working in partnership with the state, they serve as a proxy for the state. And I'm wondering, Harry, if you've thoughts on that and if there are particular mechanisms, Congresswoman, that you feel ought to be in place to ensure that the most vulnerable that we're talking about are also protected from perhaps other traumas that they might encounter in environments in which they are judged through a lens that may be more critical because of the different ways in which people of different faith traditions may approach mental health recovery and addiction. I think it's a really important question. I think that looking at what are the different pathways to recovery, the most clear thing that we've seen with addiction and these mental health issues, they don't discriminate based on faith, religion, you know, race, gender, anything. These are issues that impact everybody and everybody in this country has a right to their own beliefs and their own spiritual principles or systems that they adhere to. So I think, you know, really the focus needs to be looking at clinically and medically speaking, the treatment needs to be in line with that. And we need to be looking at outcomes for a long time, especially before this was really viewed in the medical sense of this is a disease. It really kind of allowed people to treat it however they saw fit without needing to provide information or data and research on outcomes. And we really need to pivot back and look at it the way that we look at other medical treatments and focus on the outcomes. And there should be no discrimination any area, especially in an area of faith or religion or someone's gender identity, whatever that may be, because it's only going to turn people away and it's not going to be an opportunity for people to heal. If you had a broken arm, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that's your fault. I'd take you to get your arm fixed. So if you have a disease and it affects your brain, people need to understand it in similar, very basic ways. It maddening to me because I'm a person of some faith that my faith tells me I'm not supposed to judge others. And yet so often we see these harsh judgments come down on people who are addicts on people who struggle with depression, 
bipolar disorder or whatever the disease is. And I just think that's totally in contradiction with my faith. It's hard to live by, but we're not supposed to judge. It's hard to do. But it is the antithesis of what my faith tells me. And as a lawmaker and as someone who looks at the First Amendment constitutional rights, I'm curious, do you feel like in a place in which there is remote access, limited resources, and the state turns to the one faith-based recovery network system, do there need to be federal protections in place to ensure that clients are not coerced? Sure. You just drew a picture of an area that's a, a bit of a, an island for care. And so certainly I wouldn't want to shut people out of any care whatsoever based on their religious affiliation. My ambition as a lawmaker, a legislator, appropriator, uh, is, of course, to make sure we're following the science, following the data, the research, what's known to be true. So I take that same seriousness to resources for mental health, for public health, but I, I would never slam the door. Uh, on resources, if that's the only resources available to a community. But it's a very careful thing you have to do. You have to scrutinize and make sure that this is based in science and medicine and that you're not using government dollars to support a church. What I am curious about is how much attention and energy is needed from the public to be able to create the public will that lawmakers need to make this a priority. I don't wait for the public pressure, if that makes any sense to you. You know, Lincoln said, public sentiment is everything. With it, you can do almost anything. Without it, you can do almost nothing. But I already believe this in my own fiber. So I'm not waiting for the public pressure. But I will tell you, with it, we will be able to do anything. So it's already in my core. It's already in my soul. Um, I want to talk about Jamie for a minute. You're talking about Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin. When I heard of his suffering and the death of his son, New Year's Eve, mm. um, from depression, died of suicide, he's going to make such a difference. Mm -hmm. Do you see what he did with his grief? He didn't hide it. You saw he beautifully wrote about his son, quoted his son's final note saying, please forgive me. My disease won today. I mean, that's that's powerful honesty. That's going to make a difference. So, sure, it would help to get public opinion to come behind us. But you've got a bunch of legislators who already think this is important to fight about. Congresswoman Madeline Dean is a Democrat representing Pennsylvania's Montgomery County. She's also one of the managers of President Donald J. Trump's second impeachment. Harry Kanan is a resource director for Karen Treatment Centers in New Jersey, where he once received treatment for opioid addiction. Their forthcoming memoir, Under Our Roof, will be released on February 16, 2021, by Penguin Random House. That's all for this week's show. A shout out to our producers, Kimberly Winston and Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. I also want to welcome our new audience engagement fellow, Lila Weitzner. She's going to be supporting our new programs to engage listeners and our station partners, including our new book club. On February 25th, 
The book club will be meeting, and we are reading See No Stranger by Valerie Carr. If you want to join, send an email to lila, L-I-L-A, at interfaithradio.org. Before we go, I just want to acknowledge we are living in difficult times, and many of us are struggling. If you or someone you know is in emotional distress, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is a 24-7 service. It's toll-free, and it's available at one 800 273-8255. Wherever you are, I hope you are well. I hope you stay safe and connected. See you next week. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan.